<laughs> Good morning. Uh, great to be together, and uh, I hope you enjoy the vibrant slide behind you, behind my head. Uh, we went for as colourful a palette as we could because we're starting a new series in the book of Philippians where we're going to be exploring the subject of defiant joy. And uh, so we're really excited to get into that in uh, just a few uh, minutes. Um, but for those of you that don't know me, my name's Phil, and I'm part of the leadership team here at King's Arms. And uh, yeah, it's just an honor to be together, praying that the rain stops, and God bless everyone who parked our cars this morning. Thank you. <laughs> we really appreciate that. Um, I also just wanted to just give a little bit of feedback from a conference that uh, myself, my wife, and Simon and Caroline were at uh, a week ago in Cyprus. We are, as a church, we're part of a much uh, larger network of churches uh, that's working all over the world, and we have the privilege of gathering with numbers of our teams that are working across the world in about 80 different nations to just have a week of sharing stories, of praying, of worshiping, and just hearing what the Lord wanted to say. And it was just, it was, you know those moments you're like, I'm not quite sure why I'm in the room, but I'm really glad I am because it felt such a privilege, particularly to hear the stories of uh, leaders who are in persecuted contexts around the world or in nations that are currently war-torn. It was just such a humbling experience to sit at their feet and hear the stories of how they're living their Christian life in the midst of some real, real challenging circumstances. We had... Uh, Russian pastors sitting next to Ukrainian pastors. There were just like some beautiful moments as we expressed family to one another. And I just wanted to read just a, a little excerpt of a, a report that a friend wrote, because I think it's encouraging for us just to know we're part of something bigger than ourselves. So he writes this, and the, the conference was called Global. He said, anyone who calls their annual conference global has taken a bit of a risk. It could all too easily become a name which looks good on a logo or a vision statement, but simply does not reflect reality. If you're going to talk about being a global movement as we do, you need to make sure the people invited, the subjects discussed, the vision cast, the prayers prayed, and the leadership represented all reflect that vision. It's a high bar. But from my perspective, at least the bar was cleared with room to spare. And he says, you can tell from the languages. In just three days, I heard people speaking or singing from the microphone in Albanian, Arabic, Bemba, Bulgarian, Chinese, English, French, Greek, Hindi, Igbo, Kurdish, Portuguese, Russian, Shangana, Shona, Spanish, Swahili, Turkish, Ukrainian, and Urdu, and I know I missed at least one. He said, I haven't done the maths, but I'd hazard at least four out of five people alive today can speak at least one of those languages, and it could be more. And he says, and you can also tell from the prayers. He said, at Global, the focus of the prayer meetings was almost always the majority world. Famine in Kenya, persecution in South Asia and the Middle East, church planting in Mexico and West Africa, frontier mission in nations that you can't even mention in an article like this. The miracles and testimonies we heard about from many of those places would make you want to dance. And the challenges and opposition we heard about would make you want to cry. And plenty of us did both. And then he said, and you can tell from the mealtimes. To take just one example, you're sitting at dinner with five Russian speakers, one of whom, probably the person who works hardest at the entire conference, is translating everything both ways across the table. You hear a story of a paralyzed person being healed in Baku. You hear another story about the work amongst unreached peoples in their high Arctic circle with a pastor who originally traveled there. You hear how the war in Ukraine is affecting churches in both countries. 
You discover that unbeknownst to you, one of your courses has been translated into Russian and is being used right now to train leaders. You talk about which resources to be translated and which ones need to be. You hear Russian jokes about English people and laugh together, and then you eat baklava, <laughs> which is my favorite line. Um, but guys, just to say, we are part of something so much bigger than ourselves, and it's really important for us to realize that, that we are part of a worldwide family, and that when one part of the body across the world suffers, we suffer with them, and when one part rejoices, we rejoice with them as well. And I just want to encourage us, it's so easy to get locked into our own bubbles and our own lives. You know, well, it took me 20 minutes to get to King's house this morning. Isn't life difficult? But actually to remember, we are part of a global family. And I particularly just want to urge us to remember the persecuted church around the world and to pray for churches that are in war-torn nations. They need our prayers. And many of you will have friends and even maybe family in some of those places. And I just want to encourage us to remember them and so I just want to pray for them right now, and then we'll, we'll dive into the Word of God together. Jesus, we just today want to remember friends and family and the church worldwide in places that are tough to be a Christian right now. And Jesus, we want to pray for those in Ukraine. Jesus, would you come, Holy Spirit, into the midst of war and let your peace come. God, again, we just pray for peace in that nation. We pray for an end of conflict. Lord, we pray that Christians would shine like a light in that place. Jesus, we pray. We pray the same for Russia, God. We pray, Lord, let the church arise, Lord, in that nation. Let the kingdom of God come in that nation, Lord. In a, a moment of great pressure, we say, Jesus, have your way. Be glorified, God, in the midst of strife, in the midst of great fear and anxiety and hatred. Jesus, let your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we say let your kingdom come to nations like North Korea. Let your, your kingdom come to places in Pakistan and India right now where it's so difficult to be a believer. We say, Jesus, let your spirit fall. Let your spirit fall on believers right across this world. Lord, you said you'd have the glory. <laughs> Lord, you said, Lord, unless a, a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it abides alone. And we just pray for those right now who are suffering and in pressure and in stress. We say, Jesus, breathe your life in those places. Come, Lord, come in the midst of strife and have the glory. God, today we stand with our brothers and sisters around the world and we just speak peace and blessing over their lives in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So we are in the book of Philippians where we're starting this new series. And, um, you know, if you've been uh, watching the news at all this week, uh, a week is a long time in politics. It's never quite seemed so relevant, perhaps, as it has this week. It's been a, a tumultuous week of all sorts of change and chaos. Um, and yeah, I think one of the things it's proven again to me is that unity is hard to create, but it's very easy to lose. It's hard to create and it's easy to lose. And that's not so much a political statement as it is a human being statement. Human beings, it's is, is hard to create unity, but it's very easy to divide. And that's because we're all so different. You know, if you just look around this room, you look at the person you're sitting next to, we are so different than one another. And that's part of the way God's made the beauty of his creation. But it also means that our differences can so often be the point at which the enemy tries to sow disunity. You know, his strategy has always been the same, divide and conquer. That is the enemy's strategy. If he can divide using our differences, then he will do it at every single opportunity. That's always been his strategy because human beings are so different than one another. 
you know, I just have to look at my own family, just like my immediate family of four people, we are so different. Like, you know, so my wife, for example, she likes to turn the thermostat down, I like to turn the thermostat up. You know, she's a, she's a saver, and I'm a spender. Um, she's, she's an extrovert, I'm much more of an introvert. You know, she is very tidy, very organized, and I am creative. That's what I tell her. Darling, I'm using a different side of my brain than you. It's just the way God made me. We are just, we are so different. Now, I think about my kids, you know, it's almost like they came from a different gene pool than one another. They are so different than one another. We have a, we have a girl, we have a boy, and they're, they're literally, they are like polar opposites. Polar opposites. So, like, Laura, my daughter, she loves beige, bland food. So, chicken nuggets, chips, macaroni, cheese, that's her absolute happy place. Really happy with a beige plate of food, no spice, no flavor, beige. My son has got an absolute asbestos mouth and just can eat anything. He likes spicy food, the hotter the better. You know, Lauren, you know, she, she uh, t- this week on a day off, she got up at 12 o'clock, like noon. My, my son on his day off, he got up at 4.30 so he could go to the gym in the morning. They are just polar opposites. My, my son's room was like a museum. Nothing ever moved out of place. It was so organized. I used to occasionally go and sneak a dirty coffee cup into his room just to see if he would notice. And he would always spot it immediately and put it outside the door. Whereas my, my daughter's room, you know, if you could see the floor, it was an absolute miracle. Like an absolute miracle. So we are just four people. And we are just polar opposites in so many ways. In personality, in temperament, in likes and dislikes, and outlook on the world. We are so different than one another. And that's why unity is hard to create, but easy to lose. So just turn to someone and just say, you're really complex. You're really complex. (laughs) Some of you have been waiting to say that for a long time, I can tell. (laughs) Just brokering some healthy conversations here between friends, husbands, wives. We are... We are beautifully complex. We are beautifully complex. And that's what makes unity so tricky, particularly in the church. You know, Martin Luther was really the figurehead of what became known as the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Many of you will know the story. He began to protest against the abuses in the Catholic Church at the time. And you remember he, he banged his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg, 95 things that he was protesting about in the church at the time. And many of those things were incredibly important things to protest about. So for example, we are saved by the grace of God through faith alone. Amen. That is worth protesting about. Um, we believe in the primacy and the authority of scripture and that all of us can read it and hear God. That is worth protesting about. But I would suggest to you that that spirit of protest has infiltrated the church so that we've made division an art form. We now have over 30,000 Protestant denominations. Denomination literally means divided nation. That's what denomination means. So 30,000 times at least, there's probably many more, since the 16th century, the Protestant church, because it was rooted in a protest, has divided from one another. We have made an art form out of division as the Christian church. And many of us have experienced what that's like. Maybe in the churches you've come from or you grew up in. Maybe you've got friends and family who've been through very, very difficult church experiences. 
that involve people dividing from one another. So unity is hard to create. It's very easy to lose. And the Apostle Paul, as we turn to Philippians, found this to be true in his life as well. So you can read in Acts chapter 16 of the gospel breaking into Europe for the very first time, into this very important city called Philippi. Paul and Silas and his church planting team, they cross into Europe for the first time and they start telling people about Jesus. And right from the word go, the church in Philippi was incredibly diverse. So the first person we read about coming to Jesus in Philippi was a very successful businesswoman called Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth. Now, purple cloth came from a marine snail that you'd crush and you'd get a purple dye from the snail. That's just an interesting fact. It had nothing to do with my message. I just thought it was interesting. And so, so she was a dealer in purple cloth, a very successful businesswoman. And the church begins to meet in her house, first of all, Lydia. The next person that's mentioned in the story to come to Jesus is a slave girl who could tell people's fortunes on the streets. She meets Paul and Silas. She gets freed and delivered from demonic oppression, and she starts to follow Jesus. So what have you got so far? Successful businesswoman, formerly demon-possessed slave girl, sisters suddenly in Christ. Who's the third person that's mentioned? The third person that's mentioned in the church in Philippi is a professional soldier who ran a jail. Again, you know the story. Paul and Silas get locked up for freeing the slave girl. And then in the middle of the night, there's an earthquake. The doors of the prison blow open. None of the prisoners escape. But the Philippian jailer is about to take his life because he thinks they have. And Paul says, no, 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 don't harm yourself. We are all here. Nobody's missing. And that day, the Philippian jailer and all of his family give their lives to Jesus. So from, from the word go in Philippi, You've got three people entirely different than one another who are suddenly meeting in one family, calling each other brother and sister, whereas before they would never have associated with each other. For a, for a businesswoman to associate with a slave girl would have been absolutely unheard of, let alone to call her sister. So Paul found this to be true, that the church is incredibly, incredibly diverse. A former soldier is now worshipping a formerly crucified man. And that is unheard of. Which is why when you come to the book of Philippians, unity is such a key theme. Because he's writing to a very diverse church. Paul understands the enemy's strategy is to divide and conquer using our differences. So what does he speak about in Philippians? Unity. How can we be a unified people. And so we're going to read together. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this to them. Remember, he's writing to, to Lydia, to the slave girl, to the jailer, and everyone else in that church community. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, or therefore, 
If there is any encouragement in Jesus, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, and here's our key verse, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Amen. So right through this series in Philippians, we're going to be picking out these words that are focused on joy. Joy is a key theme in Philippians. And here, Paul is saying, as your pastor, as the father of this church, here's how you can complete my joy. Be of one mind. You want to know how to make your pastor joyful? Be of one mind. Be of one mind. Be of one accord. That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. If you are united, that will make me joyful. And so he begins to go and unpack how we live as a unified family when we're all so different. And so here's the first thing he says. He starts to talk about the unity of our partnership together. Now, Paul was very much influenced by the culture in which he was writing. And the culture in which Paul is writing is the culture where the Roman Empire is the power across the known world. At the time that Philippians was written, Liverpool and Manchester were being conquered by the Roman legions. So Britain is being taken over by the Romans as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. The, the Roman Empire was the power, perhaps the greatest fighting military empire the world had ever seen up to that point, and it was taken over the known world. And so when Paul starts to write about unity, he's not thinking so much values on a website as he is rugby scrum or legions marching together. Okay, so that's what he's thinking. That's the imagery that Paul is coming with when he says, I want you to be of one mind, striving side by side. Don't be frightened of your opponents. What's he thinking? He's thinking Roman legions. Because the power of the Roman legions was their absolute military togetherness. That's what made them so different than the British barbarians that they came across when they landed on the shores of Britain. They found these kind of tribes kind of just all doing their own thing, but the Romans were just precise in their togetherness, so unified in the way that they did battle. So when Paul says, listen, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, this is what he's thinking about. One of the most famous tactics in the Roman army was called the shield wall. It was, came to be known as the tortoise where literally Roman legions would have their, have their shield and their job was to defend the man to the left of them. And the person on their right was to do the same with them and they would march forward as a military unit. If missiles came from above, they'd duck down, they'd form a shield over their heads. And in this way, they moved forward as one unit. And this is what Paul is thinking about when he's talking to the Philippians. What's also interesting is that Philippi, perhaps more than any other Roman city, was associated with Roman legions and the fight for unity. Because in the year BC 42, there was a massive civil war that happened right on the plains of Philippi. So if we look at the next picture real quick, this, the one before that, one before that, oh, one before that. One after that. It's disappeared. I don't know where it's gone. There was another picture. There it is. 
Thank you, Jesus. So this is, this is Philippi. And on the plains of Philippi in the year 42 BC, two Roman armies faced off against one another for supremacy in Rome. Whichever army won would have the empire to themselves. On the one side, and you're going to help me here, this side, we had the army of Brutus and Cassius, who sounded fairly pathetic, but never mind. On this side, we had the army of Octavian and Mark Antony. I'm sorry, they absolutely nailed that. But I'm, I'm just going to give you another go. So on this side, you had the army of Brutus and Cassius. Now, if you're in the middle section, you're not involved yet, but I am going to give you a roll. So don't feel left out. I'm going to come back to you. So Brutus and Cassius, still fairly pathetic. But over here, Mark Antony and Octavian. Yeah. And then you had all the citizens in Philippi who were just scared. Very good, very good. You're all playing your parts very, very well. So there was a civil war, 100,000 legionaries on one side, 100,000 on the other, and lots of scared people in the middle. Ah, very good. Well, to cut a long story short, in this, in this battle, the armies of Octavian and Mark Antony won. Yeah, don't, yeah, I know. Don't gloat too much. Don't gloat too much. Over 40,000 legions from both sides died that day on the plains of Philippi. And Octavian went on to be the very first Roman empire as Rome turned from a republic into an empire. Um, he then got the name Augustus, and he was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And he won the victory on the plains of Philippi with his legions, fighting as one. So when Paul's writing to citizens in Philippi, Stand side by side. Don't be frightened of your opponents. Be of one mind. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Because Philippi was full of veterans, former soldiers. They were incredibly proud of their Roman citizenship. And they understood what unity looked like. And Paul's message is very, very clear. He's saying, church, you've got to be unified like this. You've got to defend the man or woman on your left and your right. You've got to love them. You've got to learn to serve them. You've got to learn to lay your life down for them. You've got to prefer them above yourself. You've got to look not just to your own needs, but also to their needs. You've got to think, how can I empower them, not just me? You've got to think, my advance in the gospel depends not just on me. It depends on the man or the woman that I'm doing life with on the other side. We don't just go to church together. We are the family of God. We are the family of God. So Paul is saying, if the gospel's going to advance in the world, we've got to go together. We've got to go together. You know, and I, just, I was thinking through my life, thinking of so many moments in my life where I just would have been nowhere if church believers hadn't gathered around to defend or protect or serve or love me. I've got too many stories to tell now, but I was just thinking of one. When Kara, my wife, was pregnant with our second child, she had to have bed rest from uh, four months pregnant. And the doctor said, if you don't have bed rest, you could lose this baby. And we also had a one-year-old at the time. I was going out to work. And what happened is for six months, our church family cooked us a meal every single day for six months. That's a, that's a lot of casserole. That's a lot of chili. But I tell you what, we were so grateful. Every day it turned up, we were like, thank you, Jesus. 
You know, someone came and looked after Lauren, our daughter, for a few hours every day so Carol could rest. Someone came and cleaned the house every single week from the church for six months. I mean, literally, I felt like they saved our life. They saved the life of our son and my, and my wife. You know, just recently, my wife, she's got Lyme's disease, and uh, we needed to get a fresh set of blood tests done. It's going to cost about one and a half thousand pounds to get them done privately. Didn't have that money. Someone from the church didn't know, but she just said, I was just praying. I've really been blessed recently. I'd like to give you some money. It's up to you how you use it. I mean, I could tell you story after story after story of how people have stood next to us, defended us, served us, loved us, laid their lives down for us. It's so humbling. But in that way, we advance together. You don't just go to church. We are the church. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so Paul then starts to describe, well, how is this going to happen? Because this, is, this sounds very ambitious. How do we live this kind of way? And so he answers the question in chapter 2, verse 3. He says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul is saying, here's how it actually works. Here's how we stay united in this kind of fighting partnership kind of way. Consider other people more significant than yourself. That is like the new operating system in a Christian. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the new DNA that you've been born with. Serve others above serving yourself. That is countercultural to the world. It's different than what you're going to get anywhere else in the world. But if you are a Jesus follower in your very DNA, you are wired to consider other people before you consider yourself. That's how this thing holds together. And so Paul is ramming this home to people in Philippi who, again, were part of a community and a culture which was built on hierarchy and status. So if you were a Roman citizen, there was a very, very clear pecking order. You knew exactly where on the ladder you were in society. And if you were at the top of the ladder, you did not associate with people at the bottom of the ladder. You know, if it wasn't your job to wash the dishes, you didn't wash the dishes. <laughs> because that's beneath me. And that's how Roman society worked. It was very much built on status and hierarchy. But Paul begins to undo this, and he says in Philippians 3.20, listen, your citizenship is in heaven. You may be proud of your Roman citizenship, but here's something that trumps that. You have an allegiance, not to Caesar, but to Jesus. You have now been born into a different kingdom. You are citizens of heaven, and therefore the values of heaven have become your values. You follow Jesus, and he works in a different way. He's not about conquest through violence. He's about laying his life down for the interests of other people, and that's the kind of people you're called to be. You're not called to build empire. You're called to lay your life down. Whew, wow. Revolutionary concepts that Paul is sharing with them. Remember, he's talking to Lydia, a successful businesswoman, saying, Lydia... Consider the slave girl more significant than yourself. She might have less money. She might have less influence. She might be lower in the status. But actually, you're now called to consider her before you consider yourself. That's how church works. You know, I remember as a young leader in Newcastle, 
I, I, when I, whenever I went into the staff kitchen, I would often find our senior pastor, Ian, washing the dishes. And it, it happened so many times that I thought, this isn't a coincidence. He's always in here, not just doing his own dishes, but doing everyone else's dirty dishes that they've just plopped on the side. And it slowly, I, as I began to reflect on this as a young leader, it slowly started to sink in what I was seeing. Because the reality is, if washing the dish, dishes is beneath you, then Christian leadership is beyond you. If you think washing dishes is beneath you, then Christian leadership is beyond you because Christian leadership is about doing the down and dirty things, the things that you think are, are too below your status. No, 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 no. Actually, in Jesus, the culture's reversed. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. This is how it is in the kingdom of heaven. God is never more happy with you than when you're washing somebody else's dishes. Hallelujah. <laughs> think about that next time. Think about that at dinner time as you're washing someone else's dishes to say, I am being like Jesus right now. <laughs> Don't tell anyone else that, but just inside, just have a little self-congratulatory moment. I'm being like Jesus. <laughs> Don't consider yourself more significant than you ought. I love what Bill Johnson says about this. He says, God has made you great so that you can serve. God has made you great so that you can serve. Because some of you might say, well, Phil, does it mean I'm not significant? No, no, it doesn't mean that. Your life has great significance. You see the value of your life by what God was willing to pay to purchase it. You see, Jesus, your life has great significance to God. But actually, in our sense of significance, that's not to inflate our pride or make it arrogant or make it self-seeking. Actually, we realize I've been given a grace gift so that I can be like my Savior and get low. And that's how this wall, this, this fighting partnership works together. What does that look like tangibly? Well, here's just a few thoughts. How do you communicate that somebody else is more significant than you? Well, learn to listen to them. Don't just talk at them. Learn to listen. Listen. Seek to understand before being understood. Particularly if you're from a different cultural background. You know, last week I was sitting over dinner with uh, two Bulgarian pastors. I don't think in my knowledge I've ever talked to any Bulgarians ever before. But I learned a lot about Bulgaria and how their culture works. And to be honest, I was just like listening, like just learning. Wow, that's how it works for you. Learn to listen and understand. Value other people's time as if it was your own. If you don't like being late with you, then don't be late for them. Ask, how can I leave this person feeling valued and treasured? Some of that is just simple things like eye contact. <laughs> Looking happy to see people. Do you, do you know that emotion has a direction of travel? So joy has an upward direction of travel. That's why you smile, your eyebrows go up. You know, if you're watching football, it's like, way! That's the direction of travel for joy. There's a direction of travel for, for you know, sadness or gloominess or grumpiness and it's, Things go down, you know? Anger is like, Bleh, it's out. <laughs> there's a direction of travel. Fear is literally just all over the place. But there's a direction of travel. And, you know, most of what you communicate doesn't come through your words. It comes through your body language. So just ask yourself, how does my body language communicate value to the person who I'm talking to right now? Encourage, encourage, encourage. You know, Carol and I were having coffee with a, a friend who's not a Christian recently, 
And just over coffee, we just began to encourage uh, this friend of ours. And we're just like, just, you know, you are amazing. Like she's been through a whole heap of stuff. I'm like, you are amazing. What you've been through, you are so, you've persevered so bravely. You're so courageous. We just respect you so much. I mean, she is just weeping in the coffee shop because she's not got anyone to call that stuff out. It's so powerful just to get alongside people. Encourage, encourage, encourage. I see who you are. Realize other people carry an inheritance for you and that you need them. Acknowledge that you don't know everything. (laughs) I need you. Be kind, be considerate, be generous. In all these ways, we communicate significance to other people. And then lastly, as time is racing away, Paul is very aware that this new operating system of fighting together and preferring one another to ourselves, it it needs a, a power and a center within it to power it. And that person is Jesus. And at the end of this section in Philippians 2, Paul says, I want you to be of the same mind as Christ Jesus. And then he begins to talk about Jesus' example. And he does three things. Number one, he points to the status of Jesus. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God. Let's pull the next slide up just quickly so we can see that. Jesus, who being in very nature God. The first thing Paul does is he points to the status of Jesus. And he's saying to the Philippians, Listen, you may think you're clever, well-educated, a citizen of Rome, driving the fanciest new electric car, but guess what? Jesus is God. You know, you you cannot trump that. You may think you're a big wig and a big shot, but you ain't seen nothing. Jesus is in very nature God. You can't get more than that. So he points first to the status of Jesus. The second thing he does is he points to the humility of Jesus. He says, Jesus, though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking on the nature of a man. He became obedient even to death on a cross. Paul is saying he was in the highest place, but he voluntarily chose the lowest place. Not just the lowest place, but the most shameful place, death on a cross. Which again, for a Roman citizen, was the most unspeakable death you could possibly have. Jesus voluntarily chose the cross. Paul is saying, listen, this is what God is like. N.T. Wright comments on this. He says, the point of verse 6 is that Jesus was indeed already equal with God. Somehow Paul is saying that Jesus already existed before he became a human being. But the decision to become human and to go all the way along the road of obedience, obedience to the divine plan of salvation, yes, all the way, was not a decision to stop being divine. It was a decision about what it really means to be divine. Did you get that? What Jesus is showing us on the cross is what God is really like. He's not a dictator. He's not a tyrant. He's a servant king. And then lastly, Paul says this. He points to the exaltation of Jesus. He says, therefore, because of Jesus' self-humiliation, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. (laughs) Jesus is exalted. So friends, how do we stay united when we're so different? Well, number one, 
we fight in unity alongside one another. Defend the man or woman to your left and right. Serve them in love. Protect them. Give to them. Pray for them. Sacrifice for them. Stand with them in times of hardship. Encourage them. Fighting, let's think scrum. Okay, we're a scrum together as a church family. We move forward as one. Secondly, we do that with this attitude. You are more significant than I am. Do you know there's a reason why pastors in this church don't have an allocated parking space? That is deliberate, not accidental. I love it when I come across in the university and there's nowhere for me to park. I love that. Why? Because I am not more significant than you. I don't get a special parking space because you are more significant than I am. It's a value statement. It may be impractical sometimes, but we do it on purpose because it's a value statement. We consider one another's interests above our own. And then lastly, if you keep Jesus at the center, everything else works just as it should do. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we love you and we thank you today that you have shown us what God is really like. Thank you that we don't serve a dictator or a tyrant but we serve the servant king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus, thank you that you laid your life down for each one of us. Jesus, you are the hero of this story. Oh God, you are the hero in every way. And Lord, we want to pray just for the unity of our church family. We want to pray you bless our togetherness. I want to pray the gospel would advance because the world sees a different spirit on us. I pray they'd see the spirit of Jesus on us. I pray they'd see the spirit of servanthood and humility and sacrifice and preferring others. I pray they'd see that on the church in this nation, in this season. Jesus, let them see a church unified because of Christ. Lord, I pray for that. I pray it right across our town. I pray for every church. I pray there'd be unprecedented unity in churches right across this town and across this area. The Holy Spirit, bind us together. In Jesus' name, Lord, we, we want to make your joy complete, Father, by being of one mind, of one heart, of one accord, striving side by side with one another. And this is our prayer this morning, in Jesus' mighty name, amen.